Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Did you see the video of the man in Jacksonville who went into a convenience store holding an alligator with its mouth taped shut? So he's holding the alligator under one arm while he's making a beer run. The video shows him getting beer, but also shows him chasing someone in a store, jokingly, as you hear people in the background laughing. So the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission are investigating this case, but I was horrified when I saw that. And I guess people thought it was funny and entertaining enough that someone posted on Facebook. So here you have a guy who appears to me either stupid or drunk or likely both with a small alligator whose mouth is taped, making an ass of himself and the bystanders laughing at this whole spectacle. Where did he get this alligator? Who knows? Is it legal to have an alligator in Florida? Probably with a permit. I don't know. Maybe he took it from the wild, which for sure would be illegal. Anyway, animal cruelty for sure. I saw this story and I wasn't surprised by any of it. I mean, uh, beer and alligators, uh, eventually they're going to... Not a good mix. Not a good mix. (laughs) The fellow doesn't look like a... Well, the whole uh, scene just looks... Like from a bad movie, you know, here's my alligator. At least he's taped his mouth closed. That's something. That's animal cruelty. That's what they do to keep alligators from biting. But this whole thing is so cruel. Of course, it's ridiculous. But I have to tell you, I know it is ridiculous, but I have to tell you, Peter, that Florida is one state that allows ownership of many kinds of exotic species. Most require permits, but still. I mean, did you know you can legally own in, in Florida a bat, a skunk? sloth, a squirrel, a fox, and even a deer. You can't own a wild deer, but you can get, with the permit, a captive-bred deer species. Anyway, going back to this case, I read it's a third-degree felony under Florida law to kill or injure an alligator or try to poison an alligator, which people have known to try to do in Florida. It's also a felony to capture and keep an alligator or its eggs unless you purchase a special alligator trapping or farming license from the state. But who knows where this guy got it? Right. I don't know where he got his alligator. But, uh, you know, if I had to describe all the stupid things I did under the influence of beer, it would be pretty embarrassing. I want to... But none of them involved owning an exotic pet? No, none. And harming the exotic pet? None involving animals. Right. I know. Okay. Another exotic pet story. Peter, last week, a guy in Michigan was bitten by his pet cobra. Did you hear about this one? No, no. So 20 minutes later, the guy started to feel drowsy and started vomiting. He was transferred to a local hospital, and then he stopped breathing, I guess, from respiratory paralysis from the cobra's venom. So he ended up in the ICU. He was intubated, placed on a breathing machine, and they got eight vials of antivenom from the Toledo Zoo. And despite this, his condition worsens. So toxicologists also reached out to the Miami-Dade Emergency Response Team in Florida, which has a venom response program. 20 vials of antivenom were flown from the Florida team and administered to the patient in Detroit. So anyway, it looks like the guy's going to be fine, and currently there's an investigation to see if this man's possession of the cobra is or was legal. Apparently this guy had or has numerous exotic reptiles and arachnids. And Peter, according to Reptile Magazine, the cobra's venom is highly potent and fast-acting and can cause death as soon as an hour after a bite. Again, who knows where this animal came from, legally or not legally, but we'll, we'll see.
Like I've said before, some people, especially uh, young men, are attracted to these exotic and dangerous animals. I just don't understand it. Now, I wonder if the ownership of exotic pets is increasing. Mm. Because last month, an article came out talking about how high the prevalence of exotic pet ownership in New York City is. You mean outside of City Hall? That's funny. In New York City, the 311 hotline has logged 369 calls since January 2017 about illegal animals kept as pets. Peter, do you know what the 311 hotline is? I never heard of it either until now. So it's a non-emergency phone number that, that people can call in in many cities to find information about services, make complaints, or report problems like graffiti or road damage. They got a lot of ferret calls, even though owning ferrets is illegal there. Better than a 911 ferret call, I guess. That's you know? true. That's yeah. true. And 311 also received numerous calls or complaints about iguanas and snakes. I wonder if they get calls like, that person next to me in the theater is wearing too much perfume. What should I do? It's a complaint. It's a complaint. Okay, non, non-urgent complaint. Your tax dollars are paying for this. That's right. Lori, maybe in your next career, you could be a 311 operator and no, thank field you. these calls. Yeah. It would be so interesting. No way. No way. That's the last thing I'd want to do, to hear from someone like you complaining of some woman's perfume in a movie theater. I know. My girlfriend... Oh, never mind. <laughs> so these stories are all over the place. Just recently, two weeks ago, more than 100 exotic animals were found living at a southwest Houston apartment. And also recently, a Venice, Florida woman was arrested for having and neglecting 34 exotic birds in her home. Yeah, pretty common. I have a heartwarming story for you, okay? This one really makes me happy. Good. And this happened outside of Toronto, Canada, when just recently, two men were sentenced, finally, a total of $5,200 for problems related to their hunting escapades, okay? This all came to light when one of them uh, fell victim to the moose decoy operation that the police were holding. He got out of his car, shot across the highway at a decoy moose, and that led to the further investigation where he and his buddies were sort of trading uh, tags. You need these licenses and uh, doing all sorts of uh, rule-breaking related to what animals they're allowed to shoot. So they were finally sentenced. So I love... That is heartwarming. (laughs) I love these stories where they, you know, have you ever seen those? They put the deer or the moose by the side of the road and they just wait. And it's like it's irresistible for certain hunters to just get out and shoot. They know they're not supposed to do it. It's like the worst thing, right? Don't do that. And then this guy shooting across... the road too. Oh my goodness. Love it. So that makes me very happy. Yep. And here's one you don't hear every day. This occurred in the San Antonio Aquarium. A small shark was actually shark napped and they've got a video of a fellow reaching into the tank. There's a sort of low level tank. You're encouraged to put your hands in and interact with the animals, which I don't really understand anyway, but they were staking out the place and uh, wanted to adopt, adopt, can you say adopt, free this little horn shark. And uh, they reached in and made their getaway in a baby stroller. Stole it! Yes. And uh, they were confronted by the manager in the parking lot, but they uh, left anyway. But due to sur- surveillance, they got the license. They were confronted in the guy's home. Apparently he had a huge tank in his home. And uh, he presented them sort of this fake bill of sale to try to 
say that he had actually purchased the shark. So wait, how did they transport it? Well, um, in water in the baby stroller? It's not clear to me from the report whether there was a little tank in the baby stroller or they just sat it down and then transferred it to a tank like when they were in the car. But they hustled out of there uh, pretty quickly. But the shark, and I should say, the shark is called Miss Helen. That's the name of the shark. Has been recovered and uh, uninjured is, and is doing fine. Good. So are there any sort of lessons from an escapade like this? Just more stupid people, I guess. Just more stupid people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I have a good exotic pet story to... Happy one? Yes. Oh, good. Very happy one. You know what that means around here. So we're going to end this segment with this. In Utah, a woman lost her pet tortoise. Did you hear about this? No, no. Harold, her tortoise, was out grazing in the grass at her house when he disappeared, and the owner, Ashley, couldn't find Harold anywhere after days of searching. So Ashley remembers just days earlier that she found a stray or lost bloodhound. She reunited with his owner, and the dog, Cooper, she learned, happened to be a retired police dog. Cooper worked for the West Valley City Police Department for nine years, and this was his first year of retirement. Anyway, Ashley ended up asking her neighbor if Cooper, the hound dog, could help her find her pet tortoise. And wouldn't you know it, Cooper picked up the scent from Harold's hut, and according to Ashley, after Cooper smelling the hut, the dog went straight to the grass where she had put the tortoise down initially, and he followed the scent and finds the tortoise hiding in the rocks just outside the neighbor's yard. Oh, that's incredible. Isn't that sweet? Wow. Okay. That's a good nose. Okay, don't go away. More with the animals today right after the break. I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in our 10th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts, Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the mammals of Australia. Australia is home to all three great groups of mammals, the monotremes, the marsupials, and the placentals. Monotremes include the platypus and the echidna. They lay eggs, are covered in fur, and give milk to their young. The term monotreme means one opening, referring to their having a cloaca, a single opening through which both eggs are laid and waste products are eliminated, similar to birds and reptiles. The marsupials have four orders. The carnivorous marsupials, like the Tasmanian devil, the herbivorous marsupials, which include koalas, kangaroos, wombats, numbats, and possums, the mysterious marsupial mole, and the omnivorous bandicoots and bilbies. The placental mammals of Australia include rodents, bats, cetaceans, and the dugong, which is related to the manatee. Non-native placental mammals include dingoes, dogs, cats, bears, and raccoons. There are no native primates or hooved animals like deer and goats. Now, the recorded history of native Australian mammals has not been a particularly happy one. And according to the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, the country has the worst mammal extinction rate in the world. In fact, 30 native mammals have become extinct since European settlement. These days, the greatest challenge is predation from feral cats and foxes, and due to the country's vastness and the elusive nature of the predators, it's a problem which continues to vex conservationists. 
It is estimated that there are 18 million feral cats and 8.5 million red foxes in the country. Other pressures on native mammal populations include habitat alteration from feral herbivores like the numerous pigs, cows, horses, and goats who now freely roam, as well as increased agriculture, fires, and weeds. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to Animals Today. July 29th of each year is Global Tiger Day or International Tiger Day. It's a day to raise awareness about tigers in the wild. In 2010, 13 countries where tigers roam came together to try to double the number of wild tigers in countries like Nepal, Indonesia, Malaysia, and India. Here in the U.S., we have quite a different situation with tigers. And to explain, I'm pleased to welcome Pat Craig, Executive Director of the Wild Animal Sanctuary, which is in Colorado. Welcome, Pat. Well, thank you. I appreciate you letting me come on today. Uh, Pat, what are the main issues concerning the welfare of tigers and other big cats in the U.S. and North America? Well, the biggest problem is um, there's a, what we call a captive wildlife crisis, and that is all these large carnivores like tigers and lions and, and bears and other animals that were that got outside of the zoo system um, about almost 40 years ago when zoos were overbreeding, and, and so then a lot of them ended up in the private sector. And so people back then, since there were no laws, started to breed and sell lions and tigers and baby, all sorts of baby animals like that. And, and tigers were probably the number one thing that were being bred and sold and continue to be probably the number one thing even today, even as it's being more and more illegal. And so it basically started with the zoos were breeding babies to put in their nursery and and that drew lots of people in, but they ended up creating a surplus of animals. And so our sanctuary started 38 years ago when we found out there were all these animals being euthanized um, on a regular basis when they were perfectly healthy. And so we were the first sanctuary in the country to open up and start taking in surplus zoo animals. And then we, within a year, found out that lots of these animals had already been placed in the private sector and people were breeding and selling them. And and so people were buying baby tigers. And even at one point, way back then, there were some that were even in pet stores um, before it became illegal. And so we spent all the last 38 years getting laws passed to, to make it illegal and try to stop the problem. But at, at one point here in the United States, there were over 7,000 tigers in the United States that were outside of the zoo system, um, which was more than double the, the wild population. And so uh, right now, what's sustaining the problem? Is there active breeding still going on? Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we kind of curbed the original problem of, of the surplus animals coming out of zoos. But then when people started to breed and sell and do all those things, um, the fish and wildlife, of course, was concerned and had their own regulations. But yet people obviously break laws and still do it. So there was quite a few people breeding and selling. And current day, it's kind of morphed into a situation where photo ops tend to be the biggest problem where people want to go to a fair or someplace, a mall or whatever, and people have baby tigers and baby lions, and they want to take their picture and get a selfie with them. And, and they'll pay, you know, $20, $25 or whatever to, to take a picture with a baby. And of course, these babies don't stay babies very long. And so most of these cubs are only used around four to six weeks. And by then, they're too big to be held by people and too dangerous already. So they basically breed more and more and more. And so they're constantly turning over tigers every four to six weeks. There's got to be a new batch of a new litter of tigers for them to use 
or lions for them to use for photos. And so they leave a, a string of these animals all across the country as they go from city to city and town to town and state to state. And so they basically just strew tigers all over the place where people who don't know any better buy the four or five month old tiger thinking that it's still safe enough for them. And within six months, of course, it's big enough to kill and do whatever it needs to do. And and so that's usually when we get the phone call from law enforcement agencies that say, hey, we found a tiger in somebody's apartment or garage or basement or um, barn or wherever. And so we have to respond and go out and, and save the tiger and bring it back here and, and give it a nice habitat and take care of it for the next 20 years. And there's no uh, rehabilitation and release to the wild. That doesn't really work. Now, the biggest problem is habitat loss, and that's the number one thing that was identified by the, the conference in 2010, is there were originally, back in like 1900, 100,000 tigers um, in the wild. And when they had their conference in 2010, there were only 3,500, and that's because 93% of the habitat had been either torn up or used or fragmented to where the tigers couldn't use it. And so... Anytime you take 93% of the living space away, you're, you're going to lose animals and you're not going to be able to repopulate them because the, the habitat's not there. And so even here in the United States with mountain lions and bears and coyotes and things like that, people are moving more into the countryside. So here in Colorado, they put down upwards of 300 bears a year that get in trouble by getting people's garage and um, trash and things like that <clears throat> because people move into those um, areas where the bears are. And mountain lions, the same thing. They they obviously prey on small dogs if they have to, and so people get mad, and they end up either being euthanized or shot or hunted. And, and so it's going to happen to all animals whose habitat, there's just no way to replace that. You can't all of a sudden say, oh, okay, we'll stop shooting them or whatever. In the, the conference that happened in 2010, that was the thing. They thought they'd be able to double the number of tigers by um, 2022, and for a little bit there, the number did go up. And then now it's actually gone back down to 3,200 tigers, and so they're losing the battle. And again, it's not so much the poaching that does it or the, the demand that does it for um, you know, Asian medicine and stuff like that. It's more that every, every time somebody encroaches on the little bit of habitat that's left, it just makes it impossible for them to survive. You know, it raises a controversial area in the world of animal advocacy regarding zoos and sanctuaries and uh, and whether it's a valid mission to preserve a species, you know, because of habitat loss. Uh, it just raises so many, so many questions. And in this sort of situation, it kind of makes sense that you want to hang on to at least some stock of animals while the world is getting destroyed. Uh, would you react to that? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, in the zoo system, there's what's called the SSP program, which is the Species Survival Plan, and and scientists, you know, calculated many, many years ago or decades ago about how many animals it would take to in captivity to um, genetically be able to repopulate a species that went extinct or came close to going extinct. And, you know, I think back then everybody didn't realize that the problem was going to be habitat loss. They thought it was more poaching and things like that. And and so there's all these genetic animals that are in the zoo system that are theoretically pure and could be put back into the wild. And and now that you, it's more about no habitat being available for those animals, um, there might be some legitimacy to keep a few alive to say, okay, the three or four parks that remain in India or 
some other country where you might be able to sustain 20 tigers here or 10 there or whatever. I guess it's really up to, you know, people in general to decide if if that's not already just so managed that it's basically is just a large zoo or a large park rather than a real live sustained population. But that's something that I think we're all starting to realize and that, that needs to be discussed is, you know, we're losing this battle because people just keep you know, breeding and getting more people on this planet and taking more and more space. And so at some point, you know, which is, which is more worthy, is it worth just um, taking all the space and letting, whether it's a tiger or a lion or a mountain lion or a bear or a coyote or whatever, you know, die. Because captive, we, we normally rescue animals and don't breed anything here. We aren't part of the conservation um, chain. We're here purely to to say each live matters, whether it's a lion, a tiger, or a bear, or a wolf, or so we don't address it the same way the zoos do. We basically just give animals a place to live about the rest of their life, and we don't add to the problem by breeding or anything like that. We're speaking with Pat Craig. He's executive director of Wild Animal Sanctuary, and in uh, part two, we're going to speak a little bit more about what happens at this huge, wonderful sanctuary. Stick around. You're listening to Animals Today. Welcome back to Animals Today. I'm pleased to welcome back Pat Craig for part two of our discussion about tigers and big cats in captivity. Each July is a global Tiger Day or International Tiger Day that addresses the issues related to uh, tigers in the wild. Uh, Pat has the largest wild animal sanctuary in in the country, if I'm correct. And uh, we're going to focus on uh, big cats and what it takes to... uh, keep such a facility uh, uh, going and growing. Welcome back, Pat. Well, thank you. Um, you know, the Wild Animal Sanctuary is a very unique facility compared to just about any other kind of captive facility in a sense that when we started saving these animals 38 years ago, we didn't want to just take an animal from one cage and stick it in another cage and, and feed it and think we won the war by keeping it alive. We wanted to make sure they had a quality of life. And so the Wild Animal Sanctuary is located just outside of Denver, Colorado, on 789 acres, and we just purchased another 9,000 acres to continue expanding onto. But what we do is when we bring in animals that were caught up in this captive wildlife issue, we rehabilitate them, and that means get them exercised and fed well and handle all their medical problems. But more, more than anything, we address their social problems because they've been kept by themselves in most cases in somebody's apartment or garage or basement and they have no idea that they're even a tiger or a lion to begin with and so we need to kind of re-educate them and, and get them to understand who they are and what they are and and hopes that they can then move into a large natural habitat it's not going to be free in, in the wild but it, we're trying to replicate that as best possible by giving each animal um, you know 20 or 30 acres or five acres for like a fox or whatever. And, and basically it's as natural a space as we can make it. And then we um, obviously feed these animals so that they don't have to hunt or, or sacrifice another animal just so that they can hunt something. But basically in here we have almost 500 lions, tigers, and bears, and other carnivores that were all captive born, rescued. They come here and, 
And then once they're rehabilitated, they do move into groups. So we have, you know, like one tiger habitat that's 20 acres and it has 10 tigers that live together that were all separate rescues and learned how to, to be a tiger and and live together. And a lot of people are always surprised because obviously mountain lions and leopards and tigers are normally solitary in the wild. And, and that's based on so all animals that are even um, in the wild either live together or live apart based on the amount of food they have. And so leopards and mountain lions and animals like that, for the most part, don't have enough food to be able to share, whereas lions have um, tons of prey to chase, but they really can't catch it without working as a team together to do it or having enough of them to bring down like a water buffalo, which is huge. And, and so when they come and born in captivity, you know, people are surprised that we have 10 tigers that live together and basically they have no competition. There's no need to chase or, you know, compete for food or, or breeding rights or territory. And so they actually become very social at that point. And so we have nearly a hundred tigers that live at this sanctuary in different habitats, um, in different social groupings. Some of them are just one or two together and other ones have as many as that 10 that live together. And, and that's based on what they want, not what we want. We always make sure that as they get together and they enjoy each other's company and they're well-fed and they have enough space to be together and play one day. And if they don't want to be near each other, there's enough acreage that they can just separate and go their own way. And so it's kind of a unique system that we have here that we address, um, trying to get these guys as close to natural as possible with a few modifications like that. Pat, in our previous uh, segment, you outlined the scope of the problem of uh, these uh, captive bred cats. And uh, I guess that's why you purchased a huge parcel in Southern Colorado. What's going to go on down there? Yeah, we, um, we, this is the third facility, the one that we're currently at near outside of Denver here. And and we've been at this facility or this location 24 years. And we always, have grown here. We've started with a couple hundred acres and now we're up to almost 900 acres here, or 800 acres, I'm sorry. And and we thought we'd continue to grow, but we've had so much growth in the last 24 years around us that we're kind of like a zoo in the sense that we're becoming landlocked. And and yet we still have to rescue more animals. This problem's not solved yet and we can't just stop um, saving animals. And so we had to go on a quest to look for a larger piece of land that would last for many, many more decades without having to worry about it becoming landlocked. And we found a beautiful piece of property in Southern Colorado that has um, mountains and canyons and hills and uh, it's all forested. And um, it's an incredibly natural um, piece of land with hundreds of miles of, of canyons. And, and so we bought that piece of land to become the future part of the sanctuary. The facility we have outside of Denver will remain here because education is a big part of what we do to, to, to tell people about the problem. And so this facility gets about 150,000 visitors a year that come here to, to learn about captive wildlife, not to learn about conservation in the wild or anything like that. It's to learn about why these animals are even here. So we'll keep this facility going, but all of our future rescues are going to start going down to the refuge is what we're calling it and it's located again in southeastern Colorado um, and it's comprised of 9,000 acres um, and so it, it's going to be a pretty amazing facility because um, the one we have here is already amazing as it is but this one's even far more natural for the animals. In the current uh, sanctuary 
people can get fairly close uh, to the animals, get a good look at them in uh, complete safety. Can you describe uh, what happens when they get there? Yeah, the the big thing was we were we weren't even open to the public for the first twenty years. We were just rescuing animals and putting them in ni- nice big habitats and and taking care of them for the rest of their life. And and we were also educating people by going around and making presentations and talking to groups. And we realized we were only barely reaching maybe a thousand people a year at best, and we needed to reach a lot more. So we knew if we opened the facility. People would want to come see the animals, but we didn't want them to pay the price. And I think what people don't realize is um, large carnivores are very territorial. Um, and so when people they don't know come walking up in like in a zoo situation and they're standing right outside of their habitat, maybe across a moat or outside of a fence, to them that's a, a direct threat to their territory. And so if we were to open to the public, our animals who are very calm and, and once they're rehabilitated, very relaxed and happy, would be very nervous and a lot like what people see when you go to a zoo and the animals are pacing and, and very nervous. You don't see that here, and that's because when we finally decided to open to the public, we built an elevated walkway, which um, is, varies anywhere from 16 feet above the animals to 45 feet above the animals in different areas. And And the reason we did that was large carnivores don't consider a sky or air to be territory. So you can be 15 or 20 feet above an animal like that, and they wouldn't be threatened at all, where if you're standing 10 or 15 feet outside of their fence, they're absolutely worried about you being a threat to them. And and then obviously they know the keepers that take care of them, but all the strangers that come on a daily basis um, is what puts pressure on these animals. And so in a zoo, when the gates open in the morning and people pour in, the animals would naturally want to just go to the back and hide in their den area, but the zoos always block those off so that they're stuck on exhibit. And that's when they feel like they have nowhere to go. They're stuck between the, the threat of the people visiting and not being able to hide somewhere. So that's when they start pacing here. They don't consider people to be a threat. And so we have this mile-and-a-half-long walkway that goes over many of the habitats here at the sanctuary, and people are allowed to visit and as you walk on this walkway and go over all these areas, the animals are sleeping and could care less. Even when people are talking or, um, you know, coughing, making noise, whatever, the animals um, never even um, look up for the most part, you know, unless they just happen to be looking up for some reason. So they're very, very comfortable in this situation. So it was really expensive to build this walkway. And in fact, it turned out to be the world's longest elevated footbridge. And so it won a Guinea's book world record for that. It's a 1.51 mile long walkway, but we did it specifically to just to protect the animals and be able to educate and also make sure it was a win-win for the animals. We'd like to encourage people to visit. Lori and I would love to visit you soon. And if they, if people go to the website, they can learn all about the logistics, right? Like, uh, no, don't bring your dog along. Yeah, the, the large carnivores, again, you know, feel threatened by things like that. So somebody's bringing their dog out here, they would consider it to be some animal that might be threatening their territory, so we don't allow dogs or cats or whatever. But um, basically, we'd love to have you come visit. And people are always amazed because they always don't have really much to compare it to, so they think it's either going to be like a zoo or maybe a drive through park. And, and when they get here and they walk on the walkway and see how calm and relaxed the animals are and how big a space they have and how well they're cared for, they're pretty amazed. And so they 
they typically will go and tell the people to to learn about it. And our website is really good at that. It has videos and um, all those things that would help people understand how we do this. And this website is wildanimalsanctuary.org. And if you go there, there, like I said, there's a lot of videos about what to expect when you're visiting. And But we do want people to understand that we're here to educate and it's not really entertainment. And most everybody who comes here walks away very educated and very amazed at the statistics that are behind us. Um, they read the stories of where these animals came from out of somebody's basement or apartment or a concrete pit. And, and now they're living in this nice big natural space. So we have you know, over eight prides of African lions that roam freely here and large groups of tigers and bears. We have over 200 bears that live here. And so it's a, it's a pretty amazing place. There's no place like it in the rest of the world. Well, thank you very much for visiting us on Animals Today, Pat Craig. More with Animals Today after the break. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website. That's animalstodayradio.com or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. So you and your family have decided to get a dog or cat. We think that's great. And we want to remind you to adopt your next companion animal instead of buying. That's because shelters have so many loving dogs and cats waiting for a home that it just doesn't make sense to buy a pet from a breeder or pet store. And sadly, over half of all animals that enter shelters are killed. That's millions per year. So when you adopt your pet from a shelter, most likely, you really are saving a life. When you go to a shelter to adopt your new dog or cat, you will find many wonderful choices for your new family member. And please tell your friends and family to visit the shelter when they are ready to get a new dog or cat. Ask anyone. When you adopt an animal, you'll have a loyal friend for life. And you'll feel pretty good, too. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIAnimals.org and on Facebook. That's AIAnimals.org. Welcome back to the show. According to the CDC, 22.5% of people in the U.S. have been infected with toxoplasmosis. Yet many or most of these people are unaware that they've had the infection. 
As you might know, cats also harbor toxoplasma, and they are the definitive host of this parasite. What do we need to know about toxoplasmosis? Well, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Dr. Robert Reed, who is medical director at VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital. Welcome, Robert. Hi, Lori. Nice to talk to you again. Robert, what is toxoplasmosis? Well, it's, you know, toxoplasmosis is, for the significance of the disease, is surprisingly little known by people, even though so many people have cats and love cats, and it is so closely associated with cats. It's a disease caused by a protozoan parasite, microscopic, called Toxoplasma gondii. And it's significant with regard to cats because cats are the only definitive host for Toxoplasma, which means they're the only animals that can harbor and produce the infective form of the parasite. Okay, so explain what happens when a cat gets infected with Toxoplasmosis, and how do they get the infection anyway? The cats will acquire the infection by ingesting an animal that's infected with it or by eating raw meat that may have toxoplasma insisted in the muscle of the animal. And when a cat eats the, the organism in one of its prey, it, uh, the organism develops in the intestine into a form. It creates, it creates eggs and passes into the stool in the environment. And once in the environment, those eggs, after a day or two, become infective to anything that ingests them. That's usually a small animal, small mammal, like a mouse, but it could be uh, a bird, it could be uh, a cow or a goat or anything that's grazing on the ground. Um, and later, if another cat eats the small animal or is fed meat from a larger animal that's not been cooked, then they can develop the infection as well. Do you treat cats for toxoplasmosis? Yeah, most of the time you don't even know they have it. It's pretty unusual for a cat to have symptoms that you would notice about it uh, from toxoplasma. They sometimes will get a little bit lethargic, like a little fever, maybe a little diarrhea, go off their food for a few days. But most of the time it's not even recognized as a disease in cats, even though it has a treatment with an antibiotic. Um, Interestingly, though, occasionally a cat will get pneumonia or some other respiratory disease or eye problems or neurologic problems as a result of toxoplasma, but you normally wouldn't test for those things unless the cat had an unusual symptom that you couldn't find another cause for. So it often passes unnoticed in the cat, and by the time the cat is recognized as having had toxoplasma, the eggs have already passed out of them into the environment. Let's talk about infections in people. How do people get toxoplasmosis, and who is at risk for problems related to toxoplasmosis? Well, that's a really good question, because as you mentioned, there are an awful lot of people that have been infected with toxoplasma, but there's not really any correlation in studies that have been performed between people who own cats and people who have toxoplasma, even though cats are often recognized is being associated with toxoplasma and in fact many times blamed for it, it's really rare for a person to get toxoplasma from a cat. Most of the time they're going to get it from eating undercooked meat or drinking unpasteurized milk, possibly eating vegetables or fruit that have not been washed properly, sometimes from digging in soil and then um, putting their hands in their mouth before they wash them thoroughly. What precautions, if any, should people take related to cats and toxoplasmosis risk? 
Well, the first thing, of course, is as many people probably do know, and where they would have heard from talk of toxoplasma, is because it's the parasite, the the disease of cats that pregnant women are warned about. Right. Because at certain stages of pregnancy, if a person is is exposed to toxoplasma for the first time, never having had it before, then there's the potential for their developing uh, fetus to be affected by the organism. And um, that's why people are often cautioned not to change litter boxes or handle cat stool during pregnancy. Um, The risk is small, but it is a general recommendation to avoid, if a person is pregnant, to avoid handling uh, the litter box or maintaining the litter box. But for the most part, there's not really any risk in having a cat if a person is pregnant or uh, more likely if they're uh, subjected to some sort of immunosuppressive condition that makes their immune system more vulnerable. Most of the time, if you avoid basic um, hygiene in, in terms of food preparation and proper cooking of meat, not allowing cats to eat raw meat, or if possible, not allowing them to hunt so that they have an opportunity to pick up toxoplasma, you can actually avoid it very easily. Um, and many times people when they learn of some of the severity and the risks, um, overreact to it. When in reality, even though it's a significant disease, it is preventable very easily. And I want to emphasize what you said earlier. People who live with cats don't necessarily get infected with toxoplasmosis more often than those without cats, correct? That is true. That's what studies have shown. Any last comments for my listeners? But, you know, there are a few things that I would want people to to, no, to take note of when they're thinking about toxoplasma. You know, one of the things, as we discussed, is cats are the definitive host. They're the only ones that can produce the infected form. And lots of people do get toxoplasma, but generally not from cats. And although cats um, are the only ones that can get it, people get it from other sources that have to do with their own personal habits more than having the cat. And no one should shy away from having a cat simply because they have a health condition or pregnancy that, um, that requires them to take extra precautions because simple precautions can help them avoid the risk and they still get the benefit of having that companionship that you get from a cat. Veterinarian Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. It's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today.